Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Abuse of Power. Today's date is Tuesday, May 26, 2020, and many of you may be wondering why it is that I'm putting up another episode today when last Friday I announced that that was the end of my nine weeks of putting up a new episode every weekday. So many of you may not have been expecting a new episode today. The next weekday in the rotation, as a matter of fact, I wasn't really expecting to put up a new episode today, but I have had a number of thoughts over the Memorial Day weekend that I wanted to share with you today. First, I am surprised that after nine weeks of putting up a new episode every weekday, I still seem to have a great deal to say about the subject of Mormonism. I suppose that when somebody such as myself has been bottling up their thoughts because they really were not welcome in a church setting, for 40 years bottling up those thoughts, that it may take some time to get them all out via podcasting. There are a number of episodes that are in a state of semi-creation, starting to be put together in my brain for future podcasts. Of course, one of those has to do with the General Conference from last April 2020. I have touched on a handful of talks that were given in that general conference, but the rest of general conference lies before me like an untamed wilderness waiting to be explored. Oh, that reminds me of the opening lines of the book, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, which I came very close to watching again yesterday, it having been made into a famous movie in 1963. And these are the lines from the opening of the movie, the 1963 movie, The Haunting, which is, I must admit, a variation on the opening lines to the book. But the opening line to the movie that that reminded me of is as follows. An evil old house, the kind some people call haunted, is like an undiscovered country waiting to be explored. Hill House had stood for 90 years and might stand for 90 more. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there, walked alone. Well, General Conference may be like an undiscovered country waiting to be explored, but when I get to that point where I will be discussing General Conference, you can rest assured that you will not be walking alone while making the voyage. Radio Free Mormon will be there to guide you at every turn, and whether that makes the trip more or less scary is entirely up to you, dear listener. Another subject that is in the creation stages for a podcast has to do with the illusion of agency in the LDS Church. There was a devotional recently given to the young adults by Brother and Sister Gay of the Quorum of the Seventy, and I feel it brings up a number of examples of this phenomenon, the illusion of agency in the LDS Church. In summary form, the ability of men and women to choose freely is a cornerstone of the LDS Church. It is something that, according to LDS theology and perhaps even mythology, a war in heaven was fought over. That's how important humanity's free agency is in Mormon theology. And yet, the LDS Church, while at one and the same time continuing to proclaim the importance of humanity's free agency, nevertheless seeks to hedge it in at every turn and guide our every choice such that the doctrine of free agency has become more or less illusory within the LDS context. If I were to boil it down to one pithy saying, it would be this, a rat in a maze is free to go wherever the rat wants, as long as the rat stays in the maze. 
In a future podcast, I want to go over some of the examples of just how the LDS Church goes about taking away humanity's free agency while at the same time assuring us that the freedom to choose is one of the single most important principles of the entire gospel of Jesus Christ. Another subject I would like to go into, and once again is only in the formative stages right now, has to do with an analysis of a couple of talks, one given by Henry J. Eyring. That's President Eyring's son, who is the president of the Brigham Young University at Idaho. He gave a talk in January of this year, 2020, in which he dealt with the subject of blind faith. Over the weekend, a friend of mine sent me a link to another talk dealing with the very same issue, and that talk was given at the 2019 Fair Mormon Conference. The talk was given by Elder Bruce C. Hafen and his wife, Marie K. Hafen, and the title of their talk is Faith is not blind. Now, as a general rule, when I find general authorities and presidents of Brigham Young University at Idaho giving talks about how it is that LDS faith is not blind, typically what it means is that we do actually want you to have blind faith in the leaders of the church, only we are going to define blind faith as something different than what is commonly understood as blind faith. So we can tell you with a straight face that you do not have to have blind faith. Blind faith, of course, being something of a negative term. Nobody wants to have blind faith. And therefore, church leaders are teaching that whatever the faith is that Mormons have in their church leaders is anything but blind faith. That's another episode that I'm currently working on. The other things that I want to tell you about have to do with a few ideas that have come up as a result of recent podcasts. The first thing I want to mention has to do with last Thursday's and Friday's podcast, the two most recent podcasts titled Born Again Book of Mormon Parts 1 and 2. Now don't worry because I'm not going to be reading an awful lot to you here, but it came from the end of the unpublished paper that I wrote in which I performed for you on Friday's podcast. The sentence leading up to this insight, which I didn't go into in the podcast and which I want to go into now, deals with the subject of how the Doctrine and Covenants redefines eternal damnation as something that is not something that is eternal in its duration, as most people would commonly think when they heard the term eternal damnation, but rather eternal damnation is God's damnation. Here's how I put it there. First, we know that as to the punishment affixed, which is as eternal as the life of the soul, the Lord has revealed that the reason he calls damnation eternal or endless is not because it will go on forever, but because his name is eternal and endless. And hence, any punishment he meets out is also properly called eternal or endless, no matter the duration. I read that on last Friday's podcast, and then I read the two citations for that. I said Doctrine and Covenants, chapter 19, verses 6 through 12, and then I said, see also Alma 36, 12. And although I did not read Alma 36, 12, I did say something to the effect of, that's a very interesting reference. You might want to check that out. Well, there have been a number of comments that have been made on the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage about Friday's podcast, but so far nobody has indicated that they went and checked out Alma 36.12 and what it might or might not have to do with the discussion of this subject of eternal damnation and endless damnation lasting, not eternally, but only for a very finite set period of time. It is because I think that reference in Alma chapter 36 verse 12 is significant that I want to go into it here and actually read it for you so you can know what it is that I'm talking about. First, let's go to section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verses 6 through 12, which I will read quickly. Let's start with verse 5, actually. Wherefore, I revoke not the judgments which I shall pass, but woes shall go forth, weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth, yea, to those who are 
found on my left hand. That's the place you do not want to be found on. On Judgment Day is God's left hand. Nevertheless, it is not written that there shall be no end to this torment, but it is written endless torment. Again, it is written eternal damnation. Wherefore, it is more express than other scriptures that it might work upon the hearts of the children of men altogether for my name's glory. God then says he will explain this mystery to the chosen. And that's where he says in verse 10, For behold, the mystery of godliness, how great is it? For behold, I am endless, and the punishment which is given from my hand is endless punishment, for endless is my name. Wherefore, eternal punishment is God's punishment. Endless punishment is God's punishment. And that is where God reveals the fact that eternal punishment, eternal damnation, endless punishment, endless damnation is not eternal and is not endless, at least not in the sense that we would commonly understand it to mean it has no end. This revelation, section 19, was given according to the headnotes in March of 1830. Now, the reason I bring up Alma 36 is because, of course, this was dictated the year before in 1829, and in Alma 36, we have a suggestion of the fact that the author of this chapter was already aware of this idea that endless punishment would not last forever and that eternal punishment could and indeed did last for a finite period of time. In fact, the finite period of time in that case was three days. Alma 36, of course, is where Alma is talking to one of his sons. He's giving a first-hand account of his conversion experience, and he is letting us in on what was going on internally within him while he was blacked out and unconscious for three days after being struck down upon seeing an angel. And reading verse 11, leading into verse 12, And the angel spake more things unto me, which were heard by my brethren, but I did not hear them. For when I heard the words, If thou wilt be destroyed of thyself, seek no more to destroy the church of God. I was struck with such great fear and amazement, lest perhaps I should be destroyed, that I fell to the earth and I did hear no more. Okay, so now he's unconscious. He's entering into this three days of unconsciousness, at least as far as the outward appearance was concerned. But inwardly, things were really happening. And this is what he tells us in verse 12. But I was racked with eternal torment. Notice those words, eternal torment. Alma is saying he was racked with eternal torment, for my soul was harrowed up to the greatest degree and racked with all my sins. So I think it is interesting and potentially significant that here in the Book of Mormon, the author of Alma 36 is describing the three days of pain and suffering that he felt while he was unconscious to the rest of the world and before he was raised again and declared himself to be born again. He describes this punishment, this torment, which was very limited in its duration as eternal torment. Once again, he says, But I was racked with eternal torment, for my soul was harrowed up to the greatest degree and racked with all my sins. That's Alma 36, verse 12. So it appears that the revelation from March of 1830 contained in section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants that talks about eternal punishment being God's punishment and not meaning that it lasts forever has an antecedent in the Book of Mormon itself from a year earlier in Alma chapter 36, verse 12. I am not sure at this point exactly what this means, but I'm pretty darn sure it means something. The next thing I want to talk about has to do with the podcasts I did about magic and the Book of Mormon. In that podcast, I drew focus to Joseph Smith's white stovepipe hat that he used in dictating the Book of Mormon, that he would place the stone in his hat, place his face over the hat, and then he would dictate for long periods of time while the scribe took down his words. And this became the foundation for the text of the Book of Mormon as we have it 
today. Some of my listeners misunderstood what I was getting at. I was not trying to say that Joseph Smith had prepared the entire text of the Book of Mormon prior to translating, that he stuffed the entire text and all the manuscript pages that that would require into the bottom of his hat and read word for word off that manuscript while he was dictating the Book of Mormon. Actually, I'm trying not to commit myself to any particular method or manner of doing it, only to suggest and point out the fact that it sure looks like it's really the hat where the trick is. It's not the stone, it's the hat. For additional details, please go back and listen to that podcast if you have not done so already. What I want to bring up here is that a friend of mine who is a very, very smart guy is reading a brand new book. In fact, I think my friend is reviewing that book. And my friend gave me a call a couple of weeks ago. It's probably best that my friend remain nameless at this point. Most of my friends want to remain nameless, and for good reason. If you were my friend, you'd want to remain nameless too. But the name of this book is called Visions in a Seer Stone, and it's subtitled Joseph Smith and the Making of the Book of Mormon. It is written by a scholar named William L. Davis. He is is not a member of the church. One of the primary ideas that is set forth in this book has to do with the manner in which preachers of Joseph Smith's day, and specifically, if I recall correctly, Methodist preachers and exhorters would use in order to preach a sermon. They did not typically get up before a large audience and completely wing it from no notes whatsoever. On the other hand, they didn't write it out word for word and then read it. Otherwise, they would have had the same mind-numbing effect that General Conference typically has on people who listen to that. Instead, what they did was they had a practice of writing a very brief outline of their sermon and then they would refer to the outline, and from that outline, they would preach their sermons. This is something that was a practice among preachers in Joseph Smith's day, and it was a skill that was taught and learned by new preachers in Joseph Smith's day. The thing that was fascinating about this is that, at least for those parts of the Book of Mormon that constitute sermons, and those are vast, large tracts of the Book of Mormon, as anybody who's read it knows, it's not everything in the Book of Mormon, but it is a substantial portion of it, that Joseph Smith may have used a brief outline of a sermon for purposes of the sermon material in the Book of Mormon, place that brief outline in the bottom of his hat, place his face over the hat, and then using the outline of the sermon could have preached the sermon for his scribe to take down, regardless of which character in the Book of Mormon was preaching the sermon at that point in the translation process, whether it was Nephi or Jacob or Alma or Moroni or Mormon. This is an interesting possibility that very serendipitously just happens to have come out in this book at or around the same time that I was doing my podcast about magic and the Book of Mormon. Now, to my knowledge, once again, I have not read this book. I've only heard about it from this friend of mine who is reading the book in order to review it. And he called me up excitedly to tell me about this correspondence with what it was that I had been podcasting about. So to my knowledge, this author, William L. Davis, does not propose that Joseph Smith took an outline of a servant and put it in the bottom of his hat and dictate off of it in order to come up with those parts of the Book of Mormon. But this is something that is mentioned and discussed in his book. This is the thumbnail description of the contents of the book found at Amazon. In this interdisciplinary work, William L. Davis examines Joseph Smith's 1829 creation of the Book of Mormon, the foundational text of the Latter-day Saint movement, positioning the text in the history of early American oratorial techniques, sermon culture, educational practices, and the passion for self-improvement. Davis elucidates both the fascinating cultural context for the creation of the Book of Mormon and the central role of oral culture in early 19th century America. 
So I think that in this brief description where it talks about oratorial techniques and sermon culture, it's talking about those details that my friend relayed to me and which I'm talking to you about right now. Drawing on performance studies, this description at Amazon goes on, drawing on performance studies, religious studies, literary culture, and the history of early American education, Davis analyzes Smith's process of oral composition. How did he produce a history spanning a period of 1,000 years filled with hundreds of distinct characters and episodes all cohesively tied together in an overarching narrative? Eyewitnesses claim that Smith never looked at notes, manuscripts, or books. He simply spoke the words of this American religious epic into existence. Judging the truth of this process is not Davis's interest. Rather, he reveals a kaleidoscope of practices and styles that converged around Smith's creation, with an emphasis on the evangelical preaching styles popularized by the renowned George Whitefield and John Wesley. By the way, I'm making a note right here because I have got to order this book from Amazon and see what it is that William Davis has to say for myself. So now there is one more thing that I want to talk with you about, and this last story is why this episode is called Abuse of Power. You may recall I did a three-part episode with Jonathan Streeter. It was three parts here at Radio Free Mormon. It was just one long three-hour episode over on Thoughts and Things and Stuff, which is Jonathan Streeter's podcast. We originally did it for Jonathan Streeter's podcast. He was kind enough to allow me to use the same recording at Radio Free Mormon. But in that podcast, what we focused in on as best as we could was not just Joseph Smith's polygamy in general, but specifically this one polygamous marriage that he had with the 17 or 18 year old daughter of Newell K. Whitney and Elizabeth Whitney. The daughter's name was Sarah Ann Whitney. And we talked about how it was that Joseph Smith went to her parents, Newell and Elizabeth, and to Sarah as well, and asked for permission to marry Sarah as one of his plural wives. How this caused a great deal of concern, a great deal of consternation and distress by all the parties concerned, at least all the parties except for Joseph Smith, apparently. But there was a great deal of crying. There was a great deal of questioning, a great deal of resistance, at least initially, to this idea by Sarah Ann Whitney and her parents. Ultimately, however, she did marry Joseph Smith. But there was a story in my own personal history that this reminded me of, in which I shared in some detail with Jonathan outside the podcast. It was actually after the podcast was over that I talked to him about it on the phone. And because it bears on the issue, and I think it is of some significance, I want to share it with you now. Now, let me tell you up front that it does not have to do with my asking a woman to be my plural wife, okay? It doesn't have anything to do with anything that extreme, but it does have to do with the issue of being in a position of authority over somebody else and then asking them to do something based upon that authority or with the perception that is based upon that authority, which ends up becoming to some degree or other unethical, at least in my mind and I think in the minds of most reasonable people, that a person in a position of authority over somebody else should not be using that authority to get them to do something that they would otherwise not do except for that authority dynamic. Now, Joseph Smith obviously had a great deal of authority over the Whitney family. He was the prophet, seer, and revelator. They had fully accepted him and honored him and revered him 
as a prophet of God. What he spoke is what God really wanted. So when he came to them and asked them for their daughter in marriage, even though they were at first resistant to the idea, as I think any normal parents would be, and even though Sarah Ann Whitney was resistant to the idea, as I think any normal teenager would be, or grown woman would be, they eventually allowed their view of Joseph Smith's authority to trump their personal resistance to the idea of this plural marriage. My example is something that is much smaller, and it goes back to 1985. It was the spring of 1985. I was still living in Austin, Texas. I had graduated the prior December from the University of Texas at Austin with a Bachelor of Arts degree and a major in dance. There was about a year and a half that went by between my graduation from undergraduate school and my going into law school in the fall of 1986. But during this particular period, I was doing odd jobs here and there to try and make some money to stay afloat. Believe it or not, dancing wasn't doing the trick. And during this time period, the spring of 1985, I was teaching an adult jazz dance class at a local dance studio in Austin, Texas. It was run by a friend of mine, and she had reached out to me and asked me if I would teach a couple of classes. I was happy to help out and make a little extra money on the side. But this particular class was an adult jazz dance class. These class members are not people who are dancers per se. They haven't had a lot of dance training. They just want to take an adult jazz dance class and have some fun while at the same time getting some exercise. So I taught this class for a number of months, as I say, in the spring of 1985. Now also during this time period, Elder M. Russell Ballard had given a talk in General Conference. This is a long time ago, and I remember this specific talk because in it he made a challenge to all the members of the church, and that challenge had to do with missionary work. His challenge was that if we would take the time to pray to God and ask him who among our friends and acquaintances was ready to hear the gospel and who it is that we should approach with an invitation, then God would prompt us with the name of somebody who might be in that category and who we should go and ask to hear about the LDS Church. Well, I will tell you that I ended up doing this three times on three separate occasions. I think he may have given the talk twice. He might have given a reminder as well in a subsequent general conference, but I did this. I took this advice. I was one of those few members who actually did what it was that he was challenging us to do. At least I assume it was a few members. Maybe everybody did it. How would I know? But my impression was a lot of people weren't doing it, and I was involved in the missionary program very heavily at that time. Maybe that's why I did it. But regardless, I did this on three separate occasions, and on all three separate occasions, a name came to my mind. I followed up on that name each of the three times and was able to find people who would listen to the missionary discussions. But as it turned out, only one of them actually joined the church. Now that's one out of three. That's not bad. And this one person who ended up joining the church was a member of my adult jazz dance class in the spring of 1985. You see how all this ties together? Her name was Lori. Lori was in her early 20s. And as far as I was concerned, she was just another member of the class. She seemed nice enough, but so did everybody else in the class. But it was in the spring of 1985 that I once again took this challenge from Elder Ballard and I prayed to the Lord that he would let me know who among my circle of acquaintances and friends I should approach with an invitation to hear the missionary discussions. And lo and behold, Whose name should come to me but Lori? The heavens did not open. The sun did not shine down through clouds. There was no angelic choir. I did not hear a voice. There was simply an impression, and what I consider to be a distinct impression, that I needed to approach Lori about hearing the missionary discussions. But there was a problem as far as I was concerned, and that problem was that I was 
her teacher. Now, this is not me being a prophet of God and her thinking I'm a prophet and me approaching her about being a plural wife. It's not about me being a university professor and approaching a student about doing something outside class. This is about Radio Free Mormon being a jazz dance teacher in a very small class, 10 students at the most, an adult jazz class in a small dance studio in the south of Austin, Texas. In other words, the power dynamic between me and the members of the class was extremely small if it existed at all. Maybe it existed only in my mind. And yet I took that seriously. I took being a teacher seriously. And so I also took seriously the idea that I should not be going to students of my class and asking them to take the missionary discussions. And that was the problem. Here I have an impression from God that I should ask a student to hear the missionary discussions. And yet my sense of ethics about the situation says, no, that's not appropriate. Okay, so what to do, what to do. I came up with a plan and my plan was this. I would wait until the class was over and I was no longer Lori's teacher before I asked her to hear the missionary discussions. Now this is gonna require some crackerjack timing because I had no contact information for Lori. This is in the age before cell phones. There were real phones still in existence, but still I didn't have any contact information for her. She was simply a member who came to class every week like everybody else did for an hour to have fun and do some jazz dancing. But at the end of the year, there was going to be a recital. Yes, the adult class was gonna have a number that they did in recital with all the other kids as well. And after the recital was over, then I considered that my relationship with Lori and the other students in the class of teacher to students would be done, it would be over. There would be a chance now for me to follow up on this prompting that I felt I had had to ask Lori to hear the missionary discussions, but I had to do it that night because after the recital was over, then she would leave, she would go home, she'd go about her life. I had no idea how to get in contact with her. Maybe I wasn't thinking creatively enough at the time, but that was what I focused on and what I decided to do is that after the recital was over, but before everybody had left the auditorium, I would approach her and ask her. And in fact, that's exactly what I did. Recital was over, everybody's packing up to go home. I approached Lori and I just told her, hey, Lori, uh, I don't know exactly how to say this, but I feel impressed to ask you to hear the missionary discussions for my church. And much to my surprise and delight, she said, sure I would. And then she ended up hearing the discussions and ultimately being baptized. Now, Lori was not an easy sell when it came to joining the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I remember I had her over to my apartment with the missionaries, over to my apartment with the missionaries to hear all the missionary discussions. And no matter how much she listened and no matter how much she read and no matter how much she prayed, she just did not get a witness that what we were telling her was true. I remember during that point in time, the LDS Church came out with a new set of missionary discussions. I think this was during the time period where they went from the rainbow discussions to whatever permutation of the missionary discussions followed that. I think they've been through a number of those since then. But I think this was the first change from the rainbow discussions where everything was memorized to a little bit of a looser format. And once those missionary discussions came out, well, now we had an excuse, right, to have Lori keep coming back to hear the new set of missionary discussions, which was basically the old missionary discussions, but in a somewhat new and looser format. Well, she continued to come back. She continued to hear about the missionary discussions. She went through them twice in those two forms. And I remember we had gotten all the way through teaching the second set of missionary discussions. So this would be what? Six discussions for the first set, six discussions for the next set. She'd been over there 12 times. She'd been reading the Book of Mormon. She'd been praying. She hadn't received any witness of the Holy Ghost. 
and it was in the evening. It was dark outside. I lived in an apartment not far from campus, and she had left for the evening, and the missionaries and I are sitting there trying to brainstorm and coming up with some idea, some excuse, some reason that we can have Lori keep coming back to hear the missionary discussions while we're waiting on God to give her a witness from the Holy Ghost. We can't understand what the holdup is. And we have been talking like this for about 15 minutes when suddenly there's a knock at the door and I open the door and there's Lori. And I asked her, is everything okay? Is your car working? Because I thought if she comes back after 15 minutes, there must be something wrong with her car, obviously. But Lori said, no, I've just sort of been walking around and looking at the trees and looking at the flowers and things and just experiencing this wonderful feeling inside. So me being a good missionary, I was very quick to identify that good feeling she was having as the Holy Ghost and it was witnessing that everything that we had told her was true you know the drill. Well, as it turned out, Lori did end up joining the church. She got married to a good guy in the student ward, and as far as I know, they are still happily married together, still living the Mormon dream. And I sure hope that whatever she's doing, she's happy. I wish only the best for Lori. But the point I want to make is not necessarily about her conversion. The point I want to make is that one of the reasons that Joseph Smith's actions toward these women and toward the Whitney family in particular relating to plural marriage and asking parents for permission to marry their daughters or asking grown women to marry him, one of the reasons this strikes me as so offensive on a fundamental level is because it seems to me such an abuse of power. Now, maybe my feelings about abusing power are overly refined. I mean, here I am, a teacher for an adult jazz dance class in a private studio in Austin, Texas. And nevertheless, I feel it would be inappropriate to approach one of my class members about hearing the missionary discussions while I am their teacher. So I don't know, maybe I go too far in that direction. I don't know, I suppose it's a matter of personal taste and subjective feelings. But somewhere between what I felt uncomfortable doing and inappropriate doing and what Joseph Smith actually did, There is a line, and Joseph Smith crossed that line, way over that line, in what he ended up doing, in the power that he abused, in asking members of his church who looked up to him as a prophet of God to either give them their daughters in plural marriage, or the women themselves, or the girls themselves, to be given to him in plural marriage. That crossed a line that was completely inappropriate, that was a complete abuse of power. Now the response is, well, what if God told him to do that? How is he going to do it otherwise? He's got to do it if God tells him to do it. Well, as far as I'm concerned, that just takes the problem and kicks it down the road a bit. In other words, you don't have Joseph Smith abusing his power as a prophet of God. You have God telling Joseph Smith to abuse his power as a prophet of God. And the way I look at it is this. If it's wrong, and I think it is, if it's wrong for Joseph Smith or anybody in his position to abuse their power in that circumstance to do what he did, it doesn't make it better to put the blame on God and say God's the one who made him do it. If anything, it makes it worse. It's one thing to look at a human being abusing their power, even to do something as atrocious as what it is that Joseph Smith did. But it's another thing entirely to say, hey, God's the one who's abusing his power or acting as an accomplice and telling Joseph Smith that he should abuse his power. It doesn't make it any less an abuse of power to put the action at the feet of God than it does at Joseph Smith. If anything, it makes it worse to put it at the feet of God. And yet this is typically where these discussions end up leading. Once we get to the point, as we frequently do in a discussion and an investigation of LDS church history, 
where a leader of the church does something or says something that is completely inappropriate by reasonable standards. In other words, your average person has got to look at this and say, yeah, that's wrong. That typically, once we get to that point, then it flips and now it's God who is the one who's responsible for having that leader of the church either do that inappropriate thing or say that appropriate thing. And somehow, that argument is supposed to make it better. Whether it's Joseph Smith's practice of plural marriage or all the church leaders who taught that black people could not receive the priesthood if they were men and could not go to the temple if they were men or women because they were cursed with a black skin. It is objectively unconscionable for leaders of the church to have been teaching and practicing the priesthood and temple ban, but once a member of the church comes to the point where they can actually recognize that fact, then it's typical to flip the switch and say, well, it was God who was requiring them to do it. And therefore, it's okay because it's God's priesthood, right? God can give it to whoever he wants. So what that argument ends up saying is, it's not okay for people, for leaders of the church to be racist, but it is okay for God to be a racist. You see, I don't go along with that line of thought. The same argument happens with Joseph Smith and polygamy. Well, it would be wrong for a person to do what Joseph Smith did, and therefore God commanded him. And therefore, stories began to circulate that Joseph Smith claimed that there was an angel with the flaming sword that was drawn that was threatening death to Joseph Smith if he did not do this. He was the reluctant polygamist, right? Therefore, it's God who's the one who is telling Joseph Smith to abuse his power, not Joseph Smith abusing his power on his own, and therefore that somehow makes it better? Not in my mind. Okay, well, that's about all we have for tonight. A few assorted ideas, a few various insights. But the main insight I wanted to focus on was that story with Lori, the Lori story, and comparing it with Joseph Smith's practice of polygamy and why it is that I consider what Joseph Smith did to be an abuse of power. Remember, in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, wash your hands frequently with soap and hot water, stay away from crowds, maintain good social distancing of at least six feet from the nearest person. If you have to cough, cough into your elbow and not upon your neighbor. And together, we will lick this coronavirus. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.